Well, greetings, brethren, and welcome to another Wednesday night Bible study. Certainly hope that your observance of the Passover, the night to be much observed, and now these days of unleavened bread, I pray that it's going well for you, that you're being strengthened by your deeper understanding of the plan of God that's revealed to us through these most holy observances. Uh, tonight we're up to, God willing, Isaiah chapter 7. And uh, what we'll do is we'll open with a word of prayer. Uh, in addition to the study, there were some questions from last week. Uh, we were at Isaiah chapter 6. We had a bit of a Q&A. And it's not until after when I went and checked the replay, uh, particularly on Facebook, that I noticed there was a question there from our sister Christy. Sister Christy, if you're watching, we weren't ignoring you. Uh, it's just the way the Facebook works. If you don't catch the question while it's uh, or the comments while they're being streamed live, uh, they disappear. And so if you're if you're asking questions on Facebook and, and we're not answering you, maybe just post the question again. It may have uh, scrolled off. You get to see all the comments afterwards in the replay, but not during live. And I also just want to mention Facebook is the worst way to get a hold of me. I really don't care for the platform. And I think that the feelings are mutual. I don't think they care much for me either. Uh, so so email um, Adrian Davis at CGI Canada. Dot org is the best way to get a hold of me or um, if you're on the Slack channel or that's the Slack platform, that's the best way, really. Um, so to, after the chapter seven, Pastor Murray is going to join us again. Uh, we have a couple of questions, one question that's carried over from last week and another one that we received by email. So we'll talk about those. And if you have any other questions, brethren, please go ahead and uh, post them. We'll monitor Facebook. As I said, if we don't catch it right away, we might miss it. So feel free to post again if we're not answering. Uh, I do have a direct link to YouTube. So if you post to YouTube, um, we can sh display your comment or question uh, on this broadcast. And we'll also check the cgi.online.church platform. So those are the three ways that you can ask your questions. And we look forward uh, to having Pastor Murray join us and then commenting and addressing your questions. And again, we don't claim to have all the answers. Uh, we're transparent. Uh, if we have answers, we'll give you the answers. Give us your opi our opinion where we think. Or maybe in some cases, we might have to go and do a little bit more digging before we can answer categorically. Let's open with a word of prayer. And then we'll get into the study today. I'm going to assume that I'm coming through clearly. Maybe that would be a comment uh, that I'd appreciate that I am being um, heard clearly. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come before you now during these uh, days of unleavened bread. It's just such a, an awesome privilege that we have, Father, that these days that were instituted thousands of years ago, that were actually created at the foundation of the earth. Uh, and here we have this privilege thousands and thousands of years later to not only understand them, but to observe them and to deepen our understanding as a result of our observance year after year after year, putting the pieces together and ultimately conforming our minds to the mind of Christ. And that's certainly the lesson of unleavened bread. We thank you so much, Father. Thank you for this great opportunity that we have week by week to just open your word and read it line by line and deepen our understanding of this ancient text, uh, very applicable in our modern world. We praise you, Father. We look forward to the return of Christ and, and just the, the healing and the salvation of your people and the removal of evil from this earth. 
We praise you, Father. We humbly ask that you bless our study now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me just uh, confirm that I am, in fact, uh, coming through clearly. Uh, thank you very much, Pastor Murray, coming through clearly. And uh, very good. Very good. Thanks, uh, Brother John, uh, coming through clearly. Okay, so let's um, get into Isaiah 7. And what I will do here, as you know that I'd like to do, as is my habit, uh, just to make sure that we're bringing forward our understanding, we began the study in chapter 1, verse 1, and understood that this is the vision of Yeshayahu, the son of Amotz, which he saw concerning Yehuda and Jerusalem in the days of Uzayahu, Yotham, Ahaz, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, that one is uh, Hezekiahu, kings of Judah, kings of Yehuda. So it's a vision that Isaiah received concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and he received this in the days, these visions, these, these, these revelations in the days of these four kings, somewhere between a 60 to 80 year time period. Then um, a very critical verse, and hopefully you were with us on the Sabbath when I spent a lot more time in this notion of the vineyard of God, that uh, Israel and particularly Judah are the vineyard of God and what that means and what it should mean to us today. If you didn't, hopefully you can go back into the archive. But in Isaiah 5, we pick up a critical text. In fact, Isaiah 1 to 6, this is the introduction to the entire scroll. The scroll has 66 chapters, but it's the first six chapters that the prophet really unloads and and makes it clear what is the theme, what is the purpose, what are the major lessons to be drawn from these revelations that we'll read in the scroll. They're all in the first six chapters. So anybody who's going to quote from this prophet cannot just take poet poetry. There's a lot of poetry in, in this scroll. You can't just take the poetry, uh, the, the verse that you feel is very poetic, marry it with some verse in the New Testament that you like, and come up with a meaning that way. You can't do that. You have to first root yourself in the prophet's teaching. So what is it that he is saying? And he, he makes the whole thing clear in the first six chapters, which we've covered. So now, everything else that we're going to read from chapter 7 to 66, and we've already done 40 to 66, so from 7 to 39, any understanding that we're going to pull out of these verses from 7 to 39, chapter 7 to 39, it has to conform to the themes that, and the outline that the prophet has given us in the first six chapters. Now, in chapter 5, we really get a heavy, some heavy subject matter. He says, regarding the, the, the vineyard, so it's a song that Isaiah sings to God about his vineyard. And now God says, now go to, and I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. So this song makes it clear how corrupt, awful, and rotten the vineyard is. And God now responds and tells them what he's going to do. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. So we should expect to see this now. God carrying this out, because uh, and Deacon Jan gave a message on Sabbath, that God does not speak vainly. God doesn't say something and say, I, I didn't mean that, I was really tired when I said that, and that's not what I meant at all. That's not God. God speaks with precision and, and with weight. 
and everything he says comes to pass. So we're being told in the first six chapters how this whole thing is going to unfold. So we should expect to start seeing this in chapter seven. I will take the hedge, I'll take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. We're beginning to see the protection that he has given to these people is going to be taken away. Verse 25, therefore is the anger of Jehovah kindled against his people. So it's not enough to run up and down and say you're God's people. You need to, well, what is your relationship to God? Well, here, the vineyard of God, God is making it clear. His anger, his fury has been kindled against these people. And, and you know, we on, on Sabbath, or sorry, on, on the high day, we talked about Christ um, and his, his relationship with the, with the Jewish people and how he refused to give them understanding. Because he, he kept them at arm's length and kept them under the curse. Because he says here his, his anger is kindled against his people. And he has stretched forth his hand against them and has smitten them. And the hills did tremble and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away. So they, they are just the, the epitome of evil as far as God is concerned. And his anger is against them. But his hand is stretched out still. These are his people. He is in covenant with them. Yes, he is going to punish them in, 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 in accordance with the covenant. And it's going to be brutal. But his hand is stretched out still because it is a covenant relationship. So all of this, Isaiah is just laying it down to help us understand the rest of the scroll. So as we read through the scroll, we're going to see all of this unfold. <laughs> and he will lift up an ensign, a banner to the nations from far. Okay. So although this is a vision concerning Judah and specifically Jerusalem, nations from far, far and wide are involved. And they're going to be summoned as part of the destruction and punishment of Judah. He will lift up a banner to the nations from far and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. We used to have a dog when we were in the country. And you just call her and whatever she was doing, she would just stop, turn around and come. She was just, you know, real obedience. In fact, she'd be fast asleep. And maybe I'm going for a run and I would just call her. She'd get up. She's ready to run. I would just always be amazed. Like you were just a second ago in a deep sleep. And she would hear that I'm getting up and, okay, Ken, you ready to go for a run? She's ready. And now we're running. You were just fast asleep a, a second ago. Well, these vicious dogs that appear to be sleeping, they're at God's beck and call. These vicious beasts. And he just has to call them and they come, vicious as they are. And, 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 and the shepherds are fast asleep. The shepherds have no, in fact, he says in, in the same chapter five when we were there, that these people who are so arrogant, they have no clue of the work of the Lord. They don't understand his work. And Habakkuk had trouble understanding his work. But we who have the benefit of the scriptures, we should understand his work. That there are nations that are very powerful that are at his beck and call, that will come to destroy his people. And, you know, again, just looking at the American situation, of which I, I, you know, kind of dawned on me as I did my research here, uh, so much of this applies to or seems to apply to America. But, yeah, it makes sense. Because there are very many Jews in the leadership positions in America who are influencing American foreign policy, influencing American domestic policy, uh, influencing the future of America. So it doesn't matter if you're not specifically in Jerusalem. If you are a descendant of Judah, this is for you. This is for you. 
So now we see America, you know, could, had no patience, no tolerance for the tweets of Donald Trump. This was a nightmare. We couldn't sleep at night because during the night, Donald Trump might tweet something. Oh, it's so wonderful that he's gone. And now, now we have a kleptocracy in, in power that is clearly anti-American, clearly globalist. And now we have, you know, borders don't work. So let's tear down the borders. Unless, of course, we're putting borders around Washington, D.C., putting borders around the White House. So somehow borders work there, but they don't work for the country. And now all kind of wide open. Child smuggling is wide open. And we can sleep at night because Donald Trump isn't tweeting anymore. But maybe there's a baby that's now in a hotel room with sex traffickers. And we can sleep now because at least Donald Trump isn't tweeting. And we just don't care about the plight of humanity under these horrible decisions that are designed to destroy America. And all of us who live in the free world in, in sort of the Judeo-Christian influenced world, the Western world, all of us are at risk with the collapse of America. And so we have to understand the work of the Lord and trust him, but at least understand what he's doing. Instead of being oblivious, as these people were, as I was trying to tell them something, they're completely oblivious. So he's going to summon the nations to punish these people. And they'll come, they will come with speed swiftly. They will, they shall come with speed swiftly. You know, uh, as America collapses and China grows and, and uh, builds strategic partnerships with Iran and others and Turkey, uh, you know, they will come with speed swiftly. And we will have tra- confused transgender soldiers who hate America that we're going to be depending on to protect America. Well, you should have a military. Yeah. Countries should have borders and they should have a military. Uh, but that's all, you know, the, we're, we're on our way out. So chapter six, then we, last week we were in chapter six, in the year that King Uzzah Ayahu died, I saw also Adonai sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And I think this is amazing because these kings of Judah are, are, are less than perfect, to put it mildly. And here Isaiah gets a vision of the true king of Israel, the true king of Judah, the, the true descendant of David, uh, the true Messiah. And so he can now compare and contrast Yehovah, the king of Israel, Israel's true king, with these, uh, pardon me for saying it, but these clowns or, or you know, less than perfect humans that are sitting on the throne and just messing up everything. So all of that is backdrop. We can now get into Isaiah 7, verse 1. And again, I just find it, uh, pardon me, I'm, I'm Canadian, but I'm looking at this global situation. And I just find it amazing that Americans can now sleep well. Now that we got rid of the 45th president who was doing his best to try to restore America and when, when was actually getting there and putting these foreign nations in check. Oh, but we just couldn't stand it. Now we can sleep at night while tens of thousands of innocent children are being abused. And there's no now there's no uh, background. FBI will not do any background checks. We can have up to 26 children per per foster uh, carer. Uh, We can put them up in hotels. Taxpayers will pay for this. Uh, We can sleep at night 
Uh, God has a lot to say about when we destroy and damage innocent lives. Look, here we are, Isaiah 7, verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jatham, the son of Uzzah-Ayahu, king of Yehuda, that Retzin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaleahu, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. Okay, so this is interesting. So we have now uh, Ahaz, who's now replaced his father and sitting on the throne in Judah, that at this time, the king of Syria and the king of Israel, his brother, Israel and Judah are brothers, but Israel sides with Syria to go up against Jerusalem, to take over Jerusalem, but they couldn't prevail against it. So this is something that we should understand. God is in covenant, not with the northern tribes. They, they are not loyal to the throne of David, but he continues to be in covenant with the south. And Jerusalem, nothing can happen to Jerusalem without God's permission, because Jerusalem is center stage in the covenant that God has with his people. So they went up against Jerusalem, not understanding. So you think this powerful force, because the northern tribes were very powerful, significant force compared to the south. And now they're teamed with Syria. This should just be like uh, child's play to come in against Jerusalem and overtake it. But they could not prevail against it. Now, let's go back to 2 Kings 16 to get a bit more of the backstory. In the 17th year, 2 Kings 16, verse 1, in the 17th year of Pekah, or Pekah, the son of Ramaliahu, Ahaz, the son of Yotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, and did not that which was right in the sight of Jehovah, his Elohim, like David his father. So, again, Isaiah has this grand vision of God on the throne, and knows who the rightful ruler of Judah is and, and Israel and the whole world. And now we have this, this clown sitting on the throne of David. And he did not do that which was right, like his father David. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, who were all evil. All the kings of Israel, beginning with, uh, uh, just, uh, Jeroboam. So beginning with Jeroboam, he just went sideways. And every one of them after that, in order to hold on to power, were were um, were un- disloyal to the covenant. So Ahaz walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, yes, and made his son to pass through the fire. This is unbelievable. So this is the the, the depth of depravity and the level of engagement with the immoral uh, pagan customs around that he would even fry his son in the fire, roast his son in the fire uh, in, in worship to uh, these foreign gods like Molech. And we do the same today. We don't care about children. We, do, we, we, we have such loving words, but the womb is the most dangerous place for the most vulnerable human being in our societies. And even now with this wide open border and what the, you can come you can get into the country, uh, focusing on America, Get into the country as long as you have a, a child with you. 
and no questions asked, just come in. And we don't know where that child goes. We don't, they don't have a name. They don't have an identity. There's no tracking. We have no idea what will happen to them. That's where we are. Uh, you know, you can know a lot by it's about a society, by how it treats its most vulnerable. And these pagan societies were ruthless. And he made his son to pass through the fire, demonstrating his loyalty to these pagan gods and their customs. According to the abominations of the heathen, whom Yehovah cast out from before the children of Israel. They, they were just despicable. And God cast them out and brought Israel in. And instead of Israel replacing them and, and, and establishing righteousness in the land, no, they followed after them. And he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So this is all some sexual perversion that they get involved in. Then Retzin, king of Syria, and Pekah, Pekah son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war. So this is what we were reading in Isaiah. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. So that's exactly what Isaiah is recounting. At that time, Retzin, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria and drove the Jews from Elath, so they were successful there. And the Syrians came to Elath and dwelt there unto this day. So the Jews had that land, but they got pushed out. So this is just a nightmare, a disaster. That the 12 tribes were to go into this land, each secure their own, trust in God, uh, establish the righteousness of the covenant. They didn't. They didn't rely on God. And now these pagans are overcoming them. But they didn't overcome Jerusalem. <clears throat> and it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. Ephraim. So Ephraim now is in league with Syria. This is unbelievable. Just like now we see America is in league with China. America is turning everything over to China, to the globalists, to the UN, to the World Economic Forum, to any global power, to the Paris Accord. There's no such thing as America anymore. It's now in league with these globalist, paganist uh, societies. It's not going to end well. So the House of David or the government in, in Judah I was told and informed Syria and Ephraim are now joining forces. And his heart was moved and the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. In other words, a poetic way of saying they were terrified. These are Ephraim is a significant force. And now they're combining with Syria to come and attack. These people were terrified. Now, let's go back. So that's the backstory. Let's go back now. So this is now Isaiah. So this is Isaiah. So the backstory we got from um, uh, 2 Kings 16. So now we're back to Isaiah that the house of David is informed that Syria and Ephraim have joined forces. And, and the poetry here is that, you know, the way you see the wind uh, having its way with the trees, these people were terrified. Then said Jehovah unto Isaiah, go forth now to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Yashuv your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. So Isaiah is to take his son and to meet the king. And it's interesting that the, the meaning of Sher Yashuv is a remnant shall return. So uh, Jerusalem, uh, all of this major uh, force against Jerusalem, it's preserved. They're not able to overcome it. Now Isaiah is to go and talk to Ahaz with his son, and his son's name is a remnant shall return. No matter what Satan does, this covenant that God has with Judah cannot be eliminated. 
So there's always going to be a remnant. If, if, if a has, even if a has goes against God, and Jerusalem has to be slaughtered, which will be the case, there's still going to be a remnant. And that's what Isaiah 6, we saw that, that this abomination that makes desolate, that's when the remnant will finally be, the, the blindness will be lifted, and, and Christ is going to return to that remnant. And say unto him, take heed and be quiet. So he, he is in a crisis situation. The prophet is to go and tell him, beware and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Retzin with Syria, and of the son of Ramaliahu. Don't, don't, don't be afraid. So the prophet's going to him and saying, don't be afraid of these people. Uh, you know, they're just, they're just stumps. Yeah, maybe they had a flame before, but there's nothing left here. Nothing for you to be fearful of. Why? Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramaliahu have taken evil counsel against you, saying, so Isaiah knows, Isaiah by revelation, he understands what's going on. He's telling the king, this is what they're saying. Let us go up against Judah and vex it. And let us make a breach therein for us and set a king in the midst of us, midst of it, even the son of Tabiah. So, so they've got this whole scheme worked out. This is, you know, we don't believe in conspiracy. Ah, Isaiah, you're such a conspiracy theorist. We don't believe in conspiracy. Everything is open. Everything's straightforward. We believe everybody, whatever they say to us. Isaiah comes and says, look, there's a conspiracy. And this is what they plan to do. But don't you be afraid. Thus says Adonai Yehovah, it shall not stand. Their conspiracy will fall to the ground. It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Retzin. And within 65 years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. So, so this is what's going to happen. Don't worry about these, these global powers and these forces against you. Here's what the determination from God. This guy, Retzin, who's over Damascus, which is the heart of Syria, don't worry about him. And don't worry about Ephraim either. They're going to cease to be a people. They're out of covenant with me. I'm going to, I'm going to cut them off completely. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So Isaiah is saying, look, this is the way it's going to unfold. Don't be fearful, but if you're going to choose to be fearful, you will not be established. Moreover, Yehovah spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask you a sign of Yehovah, your Elohim. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. And anyway, go as deep as you want into the sea, as high as you want into the heavens. Tell me the sign that you would like. Think of when we studied Judges together, when um, uh, Gideon, was, was nervous about what he had to do and the powers that were kind of arrayed against him. And, and he asked for a sign. And so God gave him the sign. And he asked for another sign to really know, is this you, God? Well, God is saying to Ahaz, you know, if you don't believe, just go ahead and ask me for a sign. I'll give you a sign. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. Neither will I tempt Jehovah. Now that sounds righteous, except that we know that he's not a righteous king. 
Why God is saying, ask for a sign, I'll give you a sign. Why would he say, I don't want a sign? Well, we need to go back to Second Kings to see what is really in the mind and heart and intent of Ahaz. Second Kings 16 and verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. So here he is, he's got Syria, and he's got Ephraim uh, in, in confederate, in confederate uh, a conspiracy, a conspiratorial plot to come against him. He's now, this has now come to his attention. He's terrified. Isaiah shows up and says, trust in God. He says, oh, no, no, I couldn't possibly. In other words, I don't want to hear God's counsel because I've already made up my mind what I want to do. And if you share with me God's counsel and ask for a sign, then I'm going to be stuck. I'm going to see what I should do, that what I don't want to do. And I've already made up my mind how I'm going to handle this desperate situation. And what's his mind? To go to the king of Assyria. So this is the sort of the emerging global power at the time. I'm going to lean. I'm going to become a globalist and lean on them. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant, and get this, and your son. Israel is God's firstborn. He should be saying he's the son of God. That the, his nation is the son of God. No. I'm the servant of, I'm the servant of you, Assyria, and I'm your son. I'll do your will. I'll do your bidding. Come up and listen to this. Save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. This, this is tragic. This is tragic that instead of relying on God as our, as his savior and the savior of the nation, no, he's gone to the global power, Assyria. Come and save me. This is, and, and the whole thing is just so tragic. Come and save me from my brother who should be sharing in the covenant promises with me. That it was Israel, the tribes of Israel, including Judah, that were to go into this land and conquer these nations, take care of them once and for all, and establish the kingdom of Israel. Now what the situation we have is they're unfaithful. They, instead of wiping out these pagan nations, they cohabit with them and they allow themselves to be overtaken by their ideologies, so much so that now we have division. And Judah and Israel, are, they are in, they're in deathly war against each other, so much so that Israel's gone to Syria and Judah's gone to, gone to Assyria. So this is just in, incredible nonsense. Talk about how, how does this look to God? Here, these are my people and they've gone and, and become confederate with the pagans. Well, don't be so hard on them because the church is no different. The church is no different. We have brethren who are confederate with Marxist ideology, ideologues, and getting caught up with Marxist ideologues against their own brethren, not discerning the Lord's body. And this, this is far worse than as tragic as this is, what brethren are doing today is far worse. And Ahaz, listen to this, took the silver and gold that was found in the house of Jehovah and in the treasures of the king's house, and sent it for a present. <laughs> How bad does this get? He's, he's teaming up with the I'm your son. I'm your servant. Now let me take the treasures of the Lord's uh, temple. 
and, and, and the silver and the gold in, from the house of the Lord. And let me give that to the king of Assyria. God says, I'll give you a sign. Oh, I couldn't possibly tempt the Lord. Instead, let me take the treasures out of the house of the Lord and send them as a gift to the king of Assyria and let the king of Assyria know I, I'm your son and I'm your servant. Just please save me from my brother. And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it. So this is the overwhelming globalist force at the time. He went and took it and carried the people of it captive to Kerr and slew Retzin. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and no, no doubt to do him obeisance and bring him gifts and uh, show him his gratitude. So this was a better way out of the situation to Ahaz rather than to rely on Yehovah. And, saw, and so while he's there, giving his obedience, obeisance to the king, he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent unto Uriah, or Uriahu, the priest, the fashion of the altar. So, you know, today we would uh, take a picture and, you know, text it. But he somehow managed to capture, maybe has some artists there, whatever. They captured the, the whole design of this altar, and they sent the design back to the priest, according to all the workmanship thereof. So this is where the gold is. These are the types of stones. Here is silver. This is the coloring. This, the whole design was communicated back to the priest. And what did the priest do? And Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So instead of the priest remaining true, it's similar to Jeroboam where he just chose these men as priests and they did whatever the king asked them to do. Same thing we see here. That the, the, king, that the priest is not loyal to God. The priest is loyal to the king, to the government. Whatever the government asks him to do, he does. So again, we see churches today at the beck and call of government rather than standing up for their uh, conviction in the Lord. So Uriah the priest made it against King Ahaz came from Damascus. In other words, he made it in time uh, for the king's arrival or return from Damascus. And when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar and the king approached the altar and offered thereon. So this is a pagan altar that he found in Damascus that he just loved the design. So he sends the design back to his priest. His priest makes the altar. He comes back. And he's making an offering on this altar. How, how far away can one stray from, from faithfulness to God? And this is, you know, during these days of unleavened bread, it's great that we're reading this. To see the root cause of these people, their problem, their unfaithfulness was pride. This king was proud. And unfaithfulness to God is, it's leaven and it grows. It starts with a little leaven and then it just grows. And now you got the priests, the king, they're, they're doing bizarre things that when the nation was established with David, the, the, the kingdom was established with David, we would have never, you know, when Solomon dedicated the temple, we would have never envisioned this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And things that the church of God will do in the future is, are unimaginable. But they will come to pass if we do not get the leaven out. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So you want to play, you want to compromise, a little leaven here, a little leaven there. Where will it end up? Look at Ahaz. And he burnt his burnt offering 
and his meat offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. Talk about syncretism. So he's got this sort of legacy type of worship from the covenant, but now he's mixing it with paganism. Church can be no different. That we can sort of say the right things and we worship on the Sabbath and we sing the right things, but if you, if God actually examines our practices, they're all mixed up. And we've got a, a, a social justice gospel instead of the true gospel. And he brought also the brazen altar, which was before Yehovah, from the forefront of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. So some, some detail there that I don't fully understand, but it looks like a complete slap in the face to Yehovah. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar, burn the morning burnt offering. So the whole worship system is being degraded and polluted. And the evening meat offering and the king's burnt sacrifice and his meat offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meat offering and their drink offerings. And you can see how this king is just uh, corrupting the whole nation and bringing curses upon the whole nation. That's what happens when people are in authority and they make these types of decisions. They're not just making it for themselves. They're cursing the whole nation. And, and you know, especially in democracy, you get the leaders that you deserve or we get the leaders that we deserve. So as they make these decisions, the whole nation becomes cursed. And it's like a parent. A parent makes the decision to do something, to move somewhere. Well, the children go. And if it's a good decision, the children benefit. And if it's a bad decision, the children suffer. So these leaders make decisions and the whole nation either benefits or suffers. So here he's making a decision that all their offerings will be on this altar. And all the blood of the sacrifice and the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. So this particular altar is, is exclusively for me, the king. This is where I will go. But you, you the priest, you'll do all of these on, on the rest of the altar. And since he was commanded by the government, what did he do? Thus did Uriah, the priest, according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases and removed the labor from off them and took down the sea from off the brazen oxen that were under it and put it upon a pavement of stones. Again, just reconfiguring the whole system of worship and the opening or the port, the, the porch covering for the Sabbath that they had built in the house and the king's entry without turned he from the house of Jehovah for the king of Assyria. So the whole worship system now that was meant for Jehovah, he's now giving this allegiance and obeisance to the king of Assyria. So this is why he says, this is what's in his heart. And when Isaiah is saying, look, the Lord says, just ask for a sign to show you that he's really going to protect you, that you're in covenant, that Jerusalem is a special piece of real estate, and God will not allow these pagans to overtake it. What sign do you want? Go to the depth of the sea or the height of the clouds. And just ask for any sign, and God will show you so you can have confidence. And we, you're in a dire situation, ask for the sign. Oh, I couldn't possibly tempt the Lord. Sounds so righteous. Verse 13. And he said, so Isaiah responds, Hear you now, O house of David. In other words, the, the, the government. So you could say, oh, hear you now, O White House. So it's, it's not just the king. It's the whole court. So it's not just the president, it's the whole administration. 
So, yeah, that's the way to think of this, the administration of Judah. Hear you now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? You've gone too far. Here's God trying to encourage you, and you're going to push his You push the patience of men. You're going to push the patience of God? Therefore, Adonai himself shall give you a sign. Okay, so you could have asked for any sign, but now Adonai is going to give you a sign. He'll choose the sign. Here it is. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this is a well-known prophecy. Uh, we would immediately relate it to Matthew uh, 1, verse 23. <laughs> Matthew, uh, here it, he um, quotes the actual prophecy. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. So clearly, this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And all of these powers that are vying for more and more power and these different allegiances and and uh, uh, alliances that are being made all with, by these very powerful people. The prophecy is a baby is going to be born. And that baby is God with us. And that's where the true power is. That's the sign you're going to get. But at the same time, we know that this is clearly speaking of Christ. I've got to believe just reading this in context that there was an immediate um, fulfillment. Prophecy can be dual. You've got to believe there was an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. That Ahaz is being told, okay, you didn't trust God. You're going to see, and, and virgin really, the Hebrew, just means uh, a young woman. So it doesn't necessarily mean a virgin. When, when Christ came, clearly, this was a miraculous conception. But here, the conception, I think, was a natural conception, but it was a young woman that would bear a son. And she would call his name Emmanuel. So, so Ahaz is going to see this, and that's the sign that God is working his plan. And God is going to do what God will do. And he chose not to work with God, not to ally himself with God, but to ally himself with the pagan powers. So I think there's a dual fulfillment of this prophecy, an immediate and then pointing to Christ. Now, in the immediate, he says, Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. And in fact, I'm just going to switch here to the complete Jewish Bible to see if I can get um, another translation of this. Where do I have that? There it is. So the complete Jewish Bible, he says, by the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, so this baby's going to be born, and by the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, he will have to eat curdled milk and wild honey. So that is a sort of a cultural context that poor people, 
would just have to deal with the milk, even if it's kind of going sour. They would have to deal with it and, and work with it and, and add wild honey to it. This was sort of the diet of, of the poor. So by the time he grows up and he comes to the point where he can understand the difference between good and evil, it's typically the age of 12. So within 12 years, say, uh, he's going to be, he's going to be in a poor family and he's going to have to, to eat curdled milk and wild honey. Yes. Before the child knows enough, to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be left abandoned. So it looks like there's going to be some kind of battle and war. And, and these kings that you were afraid of, they'll be nothing, but your land will be impoverished as well. Adonai will bring the king of Assyria on you, your people and your father's house. So God's work, God is, he, they don't understand the operation of the Lord, the work of the Lord. So you chose to align yourself and worship the king of Assyria, because they would demand worship. You chose to do that. God is actually going to use Assyria to destroy you. Bad choice. And it's very similar to the church. You chose to align yourself with the Marxist ideologues. God will use the Marxist ideologues to destroy you, to destroy your children right in front of your face. You chose this. You didn't choose choose to trust God. You didn't choose to discern the Lord's body. And I'm saying you, and not, not you, the brethren here, faithful brethren, but the unfaithful brethren, the foolish brethren, the foolish Galatians. Uh, they chose to align themselves with the Marxist ideologues. God is going to raise up the Marxist ideologues. That's what's happening now. The whole society is being turned over to them, and there's no resistance. And so now we'll see what does Marxist ideology truly believe about Christ? What does Marxist ideology truly believe about family, about children? Who do children really belong to? What's the use of children? How do you use them? What, what morality system do we use as we engage with children that we've taken away from their parents. All of this, when, when you see somebody put transgender person in charge, one of the first acts is for me to give power to transgender. This is all Marxist ideology. Are we ready for what's coming? Because there's no resistance now. So careful of our choices. Much, much better to choose Yehovah, come what may. In the end, it's all going to be good. Why? Because he's faithful. He's faithful to his covenant. Adonai will bring, and I don't even, they say Adonai here, sometimes it's Adonai, sometimes it's Yehovah, but with the Jewish Bible, they don't want to say Yehovah. Uh, so I'd have to check the, the original text. Adonai will bring the king of Assyria on you, against you, your people, and your father's house. These will be days worse than any you've known since Ephraim broke loose from Judah. And when Ephraim broke loose from Judah, we just have to go here uh, to 1 Kings 12, that the king uh, Rehoboam answered the people harshly. This was when the, the, the kingdom was united, abandoning the advice of the older, the older men had given him. And in verse 16, then all Israel saw that the king wasn't listening to them. The people answered the king, do we have any share in David? We have no heritage in the son of 
Yishai. Go to your tents, Israel. Care for your own house, David. So Israel left for the tents. So that's when Israel and Judah separated, not knowing that the, you divide yourself, you become weaker. These foreign nations are watching, and they spot the weakness. And now you're going to be destroyed. Same thing with America, dividing amongst itself, or arguing amongst itself, showing all their dirty laundry, and these rabid nations are watching. And just the other day, China on American soil basically laughed and taunted America on their own soil. Iran is taunting America. It's this, this nation that was collapsing, now coming back and being underpinned and, and uh, funded by China. And these, these nations, we, you know, America is so silly, just thinks that everybody, nothing can bad happen to them. Everybody is, is going to think the way that they do. They're seeing the weakness. They're seeing it's no longer the United States. It's now the divided states of America, the way Israel was divided. And then these foreign powers realize now is the time for us to destroy these people. And God says now to Ahaz that the trouble that's coming upon you is the worst that you've ever seen since you were divided from the northern tribes. Yes, when that day comes, Adonai will whistle for the fly in the farthest streams of the Nile in Egypt and for the bee in the land of Assyria. So this is, again, what we read in Isaiah 5, that God is going to summon these nations and the curses from these nations upon his people. They will come and settle all of them in steep vadis and holes in the rocks or caves and holes in the rocks and all the thorn bushes and bramble. When that day comes, Adonai will shave. And this is a bit graphic. When that day comes, Adonai will shave with a razor hired beyond the Euphrates River, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair between the legs, and get rid of the beard as well. So basically, uh, the king will have so much power over you, he can just shave off all your hair, and even the, the your pubic hairs, and shave off your beard as well, and you're just going to be, just look, no hair on you, which is a, a humiliation from people who now have power over you that they didn't have before. And this is, again, the, the future that the Western world faces. Marx, people don't study history. They have no idea. When we say Marxist, no, what does that mean? It's just a word. They have no idea. The ruthlessness that's coming. When that day comes, a man will raise a young cow and two sheep. Will they produce in abundance? No. He will have to eat curdled milk. So this is where that whole notion of uh, curds and honey, it's, it's, it's impoverishment. He'll, he'll have to eat curdled milk. Indeed, everyone left in, left in the land will eat curdled milk and wild honey. So that's the prophecy now that by the time this child reaches the age of discernment, where they understand good versus bad, good versus evil, by the time they get to that age, uh, he's going to be living on curdled milk and honey because of all this, what that's going to come to pass. So that's the sign to Ahaz that he made the wrong choice. When that day comes... Wherever there once were a thousand grapevines worth a thousand pieces of silver, there will be only briars and thorns. And again, this was a thriving economy. And they just take the economy for granted. And it never occurs to them that the economy can actually collapse. 
And so, you know, Israel was doing well in the north. Judah was doing really well in the south. They had very strong, robust economies that allowed them to have strong, robust military. Uh, and they didn't understand. You make decisions that can collapse your economy. And when your economy collapses, everything goes out the window. And we're, again, in the Western world, we are uh, spending trillions of dollars, you know, at least. So, so the previous administration did go on a bit of a spending spree. But at least it's a businessman that says, I need to do this at the same time. I need to remove all the red tape. I need to allow family businesses to thrive. I need to allow, I need to make decisions so that big business comes back and invests in America. And we need to get this economy going. Okay, this kind of makes sense. I, I myself have run my own business. And I know what it's like to have to invest and go into debt in order to kind of kickstart your business. And then once it thrives, you pay off the debts and, and you're good to go. But you, you need that sort of uh, investment uh, capital, uh, whether it borrowed or you have your own money. There needs to be an investment. And then if you create value, you can then pay back any debts. But you have to create value. Current administration, let's just print money. And while we're printing money, let's raise taxes and let's close the economy so that no value can be created. And then let's just print more money. (laughs) Okay, you're playing with the economy here and you're heading to collapse. And do you understand what it means when the economy collapses? Well, their economy collapsed where where there was once a thousand grapevines worth a thousand pieces of silver. There will be only briars and thorns. And this is exactly what we expected to see because of the prophecy in Isaiah 5. With this song that uh, Isaiah came up with, he says, for a 10 acre vineyard will produce only five gallons of wine. So you set up this, make this big investment in your vineyards. They're not going to produce for you the same way you have not produced for God. And seed from five bushels of grain will yield half a bushel. I'm just going to swap back to King James. I, um, uh, the the, the, um, the um, complete Jewish Bible is good. It just, you know, sometimes just uh, gives us a little more clarity in what the words are saying. But I do like uh, King James, like the accuracy of the King James and also just the familiarity of it. So here we come down to Isaiah 7. And... We were at verse 23. Well, let's go back to 22. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk. Yeah, sorry, we're here at 23. And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings, it shall be even for briars and thorns. I think the complete Jewish Bible made that a bit clearer. Yeah, 10 acres. So in Isaiah 5, which we're familiar, this is what we read. Uh, we were using King James at the time. Ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an homer shall yield an ephah. So there's just like this collapse of the economy and the, the worth of things. So, you know, we had these great investments in the stock market. We thought we had this much money, collapses to nothing. We had investments in gold or silver, it might collapse to nothing. You know, we, we, we had these fat bank accounts, collapses to nothing. And you have these images of, uh, you know, in, in Germany, during the Second World War, where people are wheelbarrows full of cash just to buy a loaf of bread. That's what this is, collapse of the economy. And I, God is doing this, I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, 
but there shall come up briars and thorns. This is exactly what he said would happen in Isaiah 5. So we see it now happening to King Ahaz. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. That's an economic curse. Verse 24. With arrows and with bows shall men, shall men come there, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. So again, uh, you've got a robust economy. You have a robust military. Economy collapses. Military collapses. And so America, superpower, is playing with fire. You know how envious nations are of America's wealth? And now they're deliberately destroying the economy. I didn't mention in terms of print, in addition to printing money, uh, this, excuse me, this welfare system. Hey, let's open the borders and anybody who desires a better life, come on in. We won't stop you. We're, you know, America, I'll speak for America. We're such a horrible racist country that when we open the border, who would ever want to come to such a, a, a hellhole, a racist country? The rhetoric is not true. Obviously, you open the borders, people are rushing to get in. And that, in addition to everything else, is just part of the economic collapse. Not to mention uh, the decisions that are being made for the U.S. military, where the highest priority is transgenderism and maternity suits for pregnant women. And meanwhile, China's not doing that. Iran's not doing that. Turkey's not doing that. And so this opportunity for God to whistle and call these nations to come and destroy. This is the, the beginning of this is the collapse of the economy. And that's what we see here. With arrows and with bows shall men come there, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. That, that, that vibrant ability to generate, create, create wealth in the economy, God is taking it away and replacing it with briars and thorns. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come there the fear of briars and thorns but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. So in other words, Judah will become nothing. They're going to be disrespected. And these nations, particularly Assyria, are going to come and do tremendous damage. And and ultimately, this is going to result in in Babylon, as we go further in the text, this will result in Babylon actually coming in and just taking over everything. So that is Isaiah chapter 7. And um, we are just going through line by line but as we go through it, tremendous opportunity for us to see, well, how does that apply to us today? And as we go through the de- these days of unleavened bread to see that the root cause of all of this is arrogance. King, the, the arrogance of King Ahaz and, and the lack of trust. So arrogance and, and lack of trust go hand in hand. So when, when one becomes full of pride, they no longer need to trust God. And this is what we see with Ahaz. And we just need to be careful as the church of God to be humble, to be unleavened, and just to trust God. You know, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego. Well, we're not gonna, we're not careful to answer you, okay? But we're just gonna trust God and whatever is His will is, we accept it. Because we know He's a loving God. So that's where we are. Uh, as I mentioned last uh, week, we had a couple of carryover questions. And uh, Pastor Murray is good enough to join us this evening. Let's call it Pastor Murray. How are you? Uh, good evening, Pastor Adrian. How are you? Good, good. Great to have you. Great to have you. How are your days of unleavened bread? Uh, ours are going well. Yeah, going well. How about yourself? Yes, really good. Really enjoying it. Uh, great uh, Passover service. Great uh, night to be much observed. Celebration. 
great celebration on the first day and just carrying the momentum through these days of unleavened bread. And appreciate uh, you doing the Omer count for us each day on the Slack channel. Yeah, it's um, an interesting year, obviously, with uh, the rarity. I'm not going to say it hasn't happened before. I think it has. I just haven't been able to go back far enough and yeah. find it. But uh, with the, the holy days running from a Sunday to a Sabbath, the uh, Omer count begins on the first day of the of the uh, festival, which is which is rare. Yeah, very very good. So thanks for coming back. Um, well, first, I'll ask you any comments today. But we did have a couple of carryover questions from last week. So maybe just any thoughts, comments you'd like to share with us before we get to the Q&A. Yeah, a couple uh, a couple that come to mind. And I do have, if we have some time at the end, a couple of news stories I wouldn't mind, uh, very appropriate, uh, that have come up today. So I'd like to uh, spend a couple of minutes just uh, sharing those. Uh, it was interesting to me, uh, you, you've been talking about Isaiah chapter 1 through 6 being the introduction. Uh, when we come to chapter 7, what, what uh, is makes that clear that that's an introduction is chapter 6 was the death of Uzziah, and chapter 7 is the beginning of Ahaz, uh, but Jotham is in the middle for 16 years. So uh, Isaiah, is uh, uh, he had 16 years at least to contemplate all of these things. So wow. it, uh, it uh, adds a little bit of uh, depth to this, that uh, all that he spoke about in chapters 1 through 6, he had to sit on for at least mm-hmm. 16 years. Mm-hmm. So Very, very fascinating comment. Very, very interesting. And uh, you made a comment about uh, 2 Kings 16, verse 14, uh, about the placement of the uh, altar of burnt offering, and that was probably yes. a slap in the face. Uh, I, I had to, took a quick look back in Exodus, and it seems like uh, perhaps uh, maybe someone out there can correct us or provide more insight, but the way the, uh, the tabernacle was set up, you would come in through the east from the east side, and that would be that would be where the altar of the burnt offering was. Then there'd be the bronze laver, and then there would be the holy place and the other places. So it was the altar of burnt offering was on the east, the far east side, not the north side. So that could be that could be uh, where uh, that slap in the face comes, just from uh, going against the the directives. And it just really is is the epitome of arrogance to to instead of being subject to the design of God. He goes and sees this design in a pagan nation and overrides every, all the instruction that Judah was given to say, I like this and I want it like this and I want to be like the, the, the nations around us. Yeah, and every all of the kings that were, were bad kings all put their own spin on things. Um, right. And uh, um, obviously what we've talked about numerous times that we need to be accurate to Torah and God sets things exactly. specifically and God is very specific, so. And there's always a faithful remnant, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's about restoring Torah, not inventing something new. That's right. That's right. Very, very good. So um, I did have a couple of questions from last week. We can get to those uh, first. Yeah, I shared with you the one um, from Facebook. Uh, this is from Sister Christy, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. But she basically uh, said, you know, she's never gotten a satisfactory answer to what happens to children of believers so that are not baptized. So, you know, a couple that are in the Lord, they're baptized and they're alive and the family is together at the time of Christ's return. I'm paraphrasing again and kind of adding a bit. Um, and they are then changed and meet the Lord in the air. What happens to the unbaptized children? They do not have the Holy Spirit. They're not going to be changed. The the parents are now in the kingdom of God, in the family of God. Any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I, it's a unique question. I can't recall any th- question like that. Uh, uh, never, never heard the question before. It's a great question. Uh, it took some time to to go through the scriptures to see what I could find, um, and I couldn't really find anything. But mm-hmm. um, some thoughts that come to mind, uh, based off of some principles that I see, is is when we look at, uh, and obviously this the the events that uh, Sister Christ, uh, Christie was talking about, you know, First Corinthians 15, First uh, Thessalonians 4 is where we where we find that. Um, as well as uh, Revelation 19 through 20, uh, that same time frame. Uh, what I would say is that from the very beginning, family was important to God. Mm-hmm. And while I can't find anything in Scripture that this is exactly what happens in the in the rarest of cases, um, and even in in Malachi where he talks about the 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 uh, raising of godly children being a priority for God's people. Uh, and in First Corinthians, the same letter where Paul where Paul describes the return of Christ, he talks about how children are are uh, sacred and set apart for for uh, special. Um, and then all throughout the Torah, um, uh, Deuteronomy six being just one of the places where uh, they were to be cared for and taught. It would seem to me that that God would have a special place for those children in those cases. They wouldn't be being dropped on the other side of a border wall and hands off and let somebody else raise them. Exactly. Um, um, so I, I don't know how God's going to handle it, but I suspect um, the parents that will have changed may have a really important part to play here and continue to raise their children. Maybe, uh, yeah. but God won't let them. God will not let them uh, um, be alone and, and fend for themselves. So that's that's my thoughts. I, I like it. I have a couple of thoughts to add to that. Um, so first, of all, I just like the, the premise, right? That that we know that God cares for families. He cares for children. He's all about family. So so we know that it's not just a matter of oh well, whatever. You know, let's just drop them off here and see what see what happens. So I, I like that. What I would add to it is um, what we see here in Isaiah. Uh, first of all, just in Isaiah seven, where the child comes to an age of maturity where they understand the difference between good and evil. And that typically in the Jewish family is about the age of 12, right? Mm-hmm. So prior to that, the child may not fully understand the moral code of the Torah. But from that point on, they do understand. So I think if it's a, a young adult, a, the older teenager, um, they have an understanding that the world does not have. So I would, I would go to Isaiah 7 for that. I'd go to Isaiah 43 to show that the tribes of Judah will be, as much as they do not understand uh, God today, as much as they are under the Isaiah 6 curse and the Matthew 13 curse, they are still his people. And they are going through a process that has been defined by or in the Torah. When they come out the other end and acknowledge God finally, that, that when the veil is lifted, and they fully, they, they can hear and they can see and they can understand and they no longer have this plague in their heart and they accept Christ. God says in Isaiah 43, you are my witnesses. He challenges the nations to explain. How do you explain all of this? And they can't. So they have to accept truth. And then he turns to Judah and he says, you're my witnesses. Explain to these nations everything that has, ha- has transpired. And they're going to be in a position to explain very clearly the narrative. 
And then I think if we look in Isaiah 60, we see all the nations coming to Zion to be instructed. And they're coming to Zion with gifts for Judah. This is not the church. These are physical human beings that have repented and acknowledged God and are in covenant with God. And the Gentile nations are coming to these physical human beings. They're restoring the children that they took as slaves. They're bringing wealth to them. And God is overseeing all of this. So I think that the physical children of believers are going to be in this category of physical human beings that are God's witnesses to the nations. And they're going to be in a leadership role to explain to the nations the actual plan of God, because they will be quick studies, as the Jews will be. They'll come up to speed very quickly, and God will use them to teach others. The twist on this now, Pastor Murray, is what about children who are not at that age of discernment? The three-year-old, the four-year-old, that, again, the parents are believers, they're in now the family of God, and we've got a three-, four-, five-year-old, or younger, a little bit older, They're not in a position to teach anybody. What happens to them, do you think? Any thoughts on that? Uh, That was probably the case case of what I was talking about. uh, uh, My answers were around those ones. Um, There would have to, you know, we've we've got the example of congregations throughout here. We've got the example of the older children, perhaps looking after the younger children. Um, 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 I, there, there will be enough uh, folks around to ensure that these uh, youngsters are taken care of and taught uh, who's ultimately responsible. Um, if I'm in that spot, I'd, I'd like to think, uh, um, even as a spirit being, that I would uh, be able to have some influence for sure. And you know, maybe it's some of the maybe it's some of the kings and priests that are, are, are the physical kings and priests that we talked about, or some of the the uh, older the older children can look after can help guide as well. Right on. Uh, it'd be interesting to find out what the actual answer is. One hundred percent agreement. Uh, the thought that came to me, it came to me today actually, was Moses, that when he was taken by Pharaoh's mm. daughter, and then he needed to be nourished or nurtured, uh, God just orchestrated it that his sister could say, "I can find a wet nurse for you," and then went and found Moses's mother, and Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, paid the mother to look after Moses. I think that just whole design shows me, as you said, God is not just going to drop babies over the border and say, who, who, who cares what happens to them? He's going to figure out a way mm-hmm. that they will be properly and adequately looked after. I think so, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right on. So those are the only two questions that I had. I don't know if you have any others. Actually, we had one you mentioned, uh, our birthday's wrong. Oh, um, that's right. Yes. Yeah. The email. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what are your thoughts there? So the question, the so question that came to me, is it kind of, is it wrong to observe birthdays? So I, I went and looked at some other sites of, of groups that teach that it is wrong, and um, the the general gist of, of what I found were the examples in Scripture, uh, like Genesis 40, where the chief baker was executed on at a party of Pharaoh on Pharaoh's birthday, uh, Matthew 14, where um, Herod beheaded John the Baptist at his daughter's birthday. Um, and in Job 1, there was, this, there was a, a wording that says every, everyone in his day, uh, that was taken to mean uh, like they gathered everyone in his day, talked about like a, a family gathering. That was assumed by, this, by some of these writings to be the birthdays. It, uh, um, and then, therefore, at the end of one of these gatherings, uh, all of Job's children died. So 
um, sort of uh, taking those examples to say only bad things happen on birthdays. Some groups have said that it, it's wrong. Uh, looking at those um, now, now uh, here in, in our organization, we leave that up to the individual. I, I know folks that believe it's it's uh, it's okay and they celebrate birthdays. I know folks that uh, within our group that believe birthdays shouldn't be kept and they don't. We sort of leave them to to between them and, and God to determine what what they should do. I can't find anything really in Scripture uh, to say birthdays are wrong. Um, uh, what I would say is, is whether it's, it's what happens on your birthday, uh, how much you celebrate it. If it's a, if it's a complete focus on self and how much I can get, 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 like in this selfie taking, selfie taking generation where we're all obsessed with, with ourselves, there's that. Or there's how my and my family keep it just private where we honor each other. It's, you know, I, my daughter on her birthday gets to choose where we're going to have dinner. We might get her a special token of something she's, she's needing or looking for cards. I like receiving cards from my kids and to let them tell me how, what they feel about me. Um, really don't, uh, not into huge birthday celebrations at all, but you know, family events. Um, I think it can be done in such a way that it's, it's, uh, shows honor. Um, but uh, from a, a scriptural standpoint, I, I can't see where it's blatantly wrong. But uh, from a sense of balance, if, if we're not balanced, it, it, we could we could be sinning on our, by having a over the top self self indulging uh, type of celebration. That, those we're, are sort of some points. Totally agree, and it's really the opposite of the lessons of unleavened bread, right? It's me, me, me. I want gifts. Yeah. I want and big self centeredness versus hey, we're grateful. Uh, that you're here, um, even the person whose birthday it is, maybe they're giving a gift to their parents to say, thank you for everything you've done for me. I appreciate it. But I, I think it's kind of uh, unrealistic or sort of stepping aside from reality to pretend, you know, nothing happened on my birthday, right? Uh, so I, I'm with you. I think uh, for us, uh, and we've been in groups where it's, uh, you know, it's against the law to celebrate your birthday. Uh, but then somehow the the, the top leader they will acknowledge his birthday. It's kind of a bit hypocritical. Sure. Um, but yeah, so we'll go to dinner. Uh, we'll just acknowledge it and, and say, our, our, share our gratitude for that individual in the family, uh, what we appreciate about them, maybe have them reflect on the year. And I think just to uh, mark, hey, this is a day that's meaningful and uh, we're grateful to have you. But I think, again, to be careful of leaven, as you pointed out. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, this calendar, the calendar that we use is, is, a, is a false calendar. So r- really just using the day to honor each other and to, to show love and honor, uh, I think, is appropriate for sure. Very good. Uh, so that's, yeah, thanks for reminding me of that. I don't know if there's anything else that you see. I'm not seeing anything here on YouTube. Yeah, I don't see any on uh, YouTube nor on... Um, I should check. On, uh, oh, I've got, uh, I do have one here. Uh, Isaiah 7 shows asking for a sign from the Lord started off as a good thing to do. How did it become, how did it become an evil thing by the time we get to Matthew 16? That's a great question. Um, let's go to Matthew 16. I think this is the, the weather perhaps. Matthew 16. And okay, so they, they, this Pharisees and Sadducees came and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. 
He answered and said unto them, When it's evening, you say, It will be fair, the sky is red, and the morning will be foul weather. You hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. He, and I guess it's verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall be no sign given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. So um, I think this is a great question. Maybe one that we have to think about a little bit more. I'll just give my first reaction, uh, Pastor Murray, and see what you think. Sure. Uh, I think here, uh, sorry, in, in um, Isaiah 7, the situation was dire. And I think God is trying to show King Ahaz that I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm, go- I'm, I'm encouraging you. I'm comforting you. So God is the one offering the sign to say, I need you to have confidence in me. I'm going to work with you, and we're going to keep this covenant relationship in play. You don't need to fear the pagan nations around you, even Ephraim. Um, whereas here, I think the Pharisees and the Sadducees are starting in opposition to God. It's not that they're in, a, in, in dire straits and God is trying to encourage them. I think here, remember the uh, parable of the vineyard, I think Mark 12, where they realize and they recognize who this is, and they want to destroy him so that they can they can possess the vineyard. So it's not that they're in dire straits and God is encouraging them; it's that they they are in competition with God, and and they want to, and they want to discredit him. So here, I think the asking of a sign is, let's discredit you publicly, and 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 then God is God calls them out as these are this is an adulterous generation. So that those are my initial thoughts, uh, Pastor Murray. Yeah, I would uh, I would tend to agree that I think it has to do with uh, the attitude and the intent behind the question. Uh, we we uh, go to another example where right after the feeding of the five thousand, they asked for a sign, and Christ was like, "Have you not been paying attention? What what more what more do you need?" Uh, so that was that was um, not not evil, but perhaps a, a little bit short sighted or lazy, and so Christ called that out on, on them as well. So. Uh, it would stand. It would seem to me that you know it's the intent behind the question, and in this case, as you, as you rightly mentioned, they were certainly uh, at uh, um, opposition to Christ. Very, very good. And I just see something here in YouTube, uh, Pastor Murray, that uh, Sister Melissa says she sent something about the children through email to you, but it's too much to read here. So I don't know if it's maybe part of the, an answer or something, but it's in your email. Okay, I can, I can, uh, I'll reply to you, uh, Melissa, uh, so, uh off, offline. And, uh, and, if there's, if there's some relevance to bring here, we can do it at another time. Very, very good. And did you, I, I haven't checked Facebook, as I said, I, I have a, not a great, yeah, I, Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have Facebook up either. Uh, I apologize. I've got the other two up, but I don't have Facebook up. Uh, I tend to have trouble with it as well, so. Yeah. Okay. So if there's anything there, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say I did have a couple of things I wanted to. Uh, oh, that's right. Here, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Let me. Uh, let me so just, just uh, here sure. Put you in. Oh, okay. You could have kept yourself in, but okay. The uh, a couple of things happened today that I saw on the news. Uh, one, real quick, uh, we were. Uh, I'd actually referred to it a little bit in one of my answers earlier, and a video was just released. Uh, by uh, on the, the news services, uh, not sure if it happened this afternoon, but it was released this afternoon, of two uh, young girls, ages three and five, 
being dropped on the other side of the border wall by uh, their parents or whoever the, the adult was. They had scaled the wall and stood on the other side and, and dropped them into this into New Mexico. And then the, the video of catching them running the other way. So these the 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 uh, falsities of of these these kids coming with parents. Uh, there's not there's not video evidence of them being dropped uh, uh, and left left for themselves. They were three and five. Opposite of, uh, interestingly enough, of what uh, Sister Christie uh, had asked about in her, in her question, uh, talking about the care of children. Uh, and the other one, um, uh, really, I wanted to, to touch base on this one. It came up today. There was a, a law, and I really want your feedback on this. What do you think about this, Pastor Adrian? There was a, a um, passing of a, of, a, of a law in California. Uh, by the California Department of Education. I'm just going to sort of go to it here. It's called the Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum, and it was passed uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it seeks to extend the less cultural dominance of California's public university system. And in, in theoretical terms, the article goes on to say, um, the new ethnic studies curriculum is based on the uh, pedagog- pedagogy of the oppressed, developed by a Marxist uh, um, theoretician, who argued that students must be educated about their oppression in order to attain critical consciousness. And what they what they've basically done here is is again more more uh, white suppression, um, and now they're linking Christianity to this. And what they're linking here is that um, it is the it is the white man's purveyance of Jesus Christ and Judeo Christian principles that and they're actually using a term called theocide that the white man through the uh, obeying the the gospels in in getting the name of Jesus Christ out there has committed theocide to all other cultural gods and um uh, this is going to be really interesting because it's really supported by by groups like black lives matter where christianity now is a white man's religion and uh, it has it has killed all the other gods in fact the california university is promoting the the, the uh, following and the chanting towards three Aztec gods, and these three Aztec gods uh, were about human sacrifice and baby sacrifice. Now, interestingly enough, I did some checking with with Scopes, or sorry, Snopes, and um, they say uh, that this this um, um, this cal- does this California ethnic studies promote. Uh, gods that uh, have human sacrifice. And they say that it is mostly false. But it's interesting what they say. The part that is true, they say, is that some historical accounts do describe the names of these gods as carrying out human sacrifices. But the aim of the California um, university system is not to to promote the human sacrifice, but is really to teach students that these same gods should be worshipped towards uh, self-reflection, and and that um, this is why they're doing this. So uh, very interesting uh, that now what we're seeing coming is that the promotion of Jesus Christ uh, is now going to be the white man's religion, which is really, really, really going to be something for the the body of Christ to come together on, and and. Um, I foresee I foresee some issues coming down the road. And again, it's California, but uh, the winds blow west to east and always have. So um, uh, uh, interesting things that came out today in the news. Wow. Um, if you don't mind, if you could send me that 
that news item. Uh, my reaction to that is, first of all, of course, of course. Uh, oh, foolish Galatians, what has bewitched you? You know, we, we, we should be rooted and grounded in the gospel. And, and, and we should also be, be knowledgeable of history. So I think if we have more knowledge of history, we'd be less easily seduced. The fact that Christianity is now being uh, positioned as the white man's religion, this is nonsensical. The early church was, was Middle Eastern and North African. And Alexandria in Egypt was the heart of Christianity. Uh, so the, the, the top Christian thinkers in the first, second, third, fourth century, many of them were black, were Africans. Uh, it is not until the seventh century when the Arabs came on the scene and just went through and slaughtered and raped and pillaged and, and forcibly replaced these, uh, religion, these Christian religions with Islam. So now Islam is seen as the black man's religion. And as soon as Black Lives Matter came on the scene, I just knew it. This is going to be the overthrow of Christianity, positioning it as the white man's religion and positioning Islam as the black man's religion. Anytime we remove Jesus Christ from the equation, just like King Ahaz, we now have child sacrifice. We, we have the, the, the demonic mind of Satan and his hatred for children and for marriage, and for sex, that takes over. And that these Aztec gods, human sacrifice is every bit a part of their religion, as it was with Molech and all of them. Uh, that's why we're, this whole abortion, even though we do it, we try to do it with, in a very secular way, it's child sacrifice. And these Galatian Christians who have supported Black Lives Matter, I've warned them, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, Get ready to see your, sight, your child or your grandchild sacrificed in front of your eyes. Karl Marx hated religion. He hated Jesus Christ. And he loved conflict. And he laughed at people who tried to sell Marxism, who tried to sell communism. He said, you don't understand. Communism does not have to be sold. We just have to destroy capitalism. Communism is the natural outgrowth. Socialism and communism is the natural outgrowth. Don't sell it. Just destroy, destroy, destroy. And, and people will, will just believe that there's some sort of human utopia that we can bring about. And it's going to end in child sacrifice and the destruction of family. So this is, it, they're very clever intellects, but this is where we're heading. We need to just go back into history to see what was done anciently, to, or even just in the near, near recent past. 100 million people slaughtered, 100 human souls slaughtered because of Marxist ideology. And they have beautiful rhetoric. This is where we're heading. And I'm sorry for the Galatian Christians who haven't woken up yet. Yeah, I, you know, all those years ago, wondering how uh, how things would play out so that uh, being a follower of Christ would be a would would be a crime. And now simply obeying the gospel, uh, going into all nations, preaching Jesus Christ, Acts four, verse 12. There, there's only one path to salvation. Uh, if they can criminalize that and cr- create this this thing called theocide, wow! Um, Satan is what, our, hands are, our hands are tied. Our hands are tied. Satan is a master of rhetoric, and we, we've yeah. got to be able to connect the dots and see where this is heading. Uh, thanks very much for for sh- for yeah. sharing this with us. I think for all of us, we have different relationships with different members of the body. I think we just need to whatever relationships we have 
if we see brethren going over off the deep end here, try to pull them out of the fire because this is really, really yep. serious. Discerning the Lord's body, as you said. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brother, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate your insights and your, your sharing your thoughts and ideas. Thanks for all your hard work and uh, have a blessed rest of the Feast of Love and Bread to Amen. everyone out there. And you're speaking on Sabbath, correct? Correct, yeah. Yes, so we look forward to that. So Pastor Murray will be with us on Sabbath to close out the Holy Days and, and bring us the sermon. So hopefully you'll join us again, 2.30 Eastern Time on the Sabbath. Have a blessed rest of Days of Unleavened Bread. Thanks so much, Pastor Murray. God bless. And thank you. God bless.